I feel like my whole life I've been really good at entering into the experience of the other and the experience of the collective. In a nutshell, the 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 great challenge of my life <laughs> is is coming back to a sense of self. Meditation cultivates awareness of what actually is. And until we have the capacity to meet what is ourselves directly, we get lost in all of the reactions. Dualism is a way to keep everyone separate. And that separation is the beginning of, of trauma. Separation is the beginning of fear. Separation is the beginning of war. It's the beginning of attachment and addiction, right? We have to have something out there other than us to either fight or claim you know, I'm not either of those fishes. I'm the water that they swim in. Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome. Welcome to this space. This is Lauren K. Hickman, and this is the Inspired Astrology Podcast. How you doing? Everything okay? Just checking in. Uh, I am offering up a spare episode to finalize Pisces season and to welcome in the spring equinox. Aries, the sun moves into a new fiery element and it'll be conjunct Venus this week. So just wanted to uh, wrap our arms around that energy as well as to get to share this amazing interview with Aaron Diaz. Aaron and I met in Brooklyn, New York through a friend through Sarah Wilmer. Thank you, Sarah, for introducing me to Aaron and for sharing our yoga practice as we did in that studio in Carroll Gardens for so long. Just meant the world to me. Um, Aaron is now in Texas, back in her home state, and they are sharing their story, the meditation journey, the journey into clarity as a Pisces being, their journey into spiritual service in the form of helping heal others through grief and transitions, awaking and empowering others, moving their journey from, I don't know, theater, (laughs) growing up in theater, moving into yoga, asana practice, and then to the meditation cushion and is now an incredible teacher uh, providing non-dualist philosophy. I'm so honored to be able to share their story here today. And you can find Aaron Diaz at nowherevillage.com. They are hosting a chakras and movement course in May and June uh, through that platform, doing lots of uh, online offerings uh, just due to the state and circumstances of things. Um, but you should reach out and find Aaron where you can, also on the Forever Marvel blog that they so articulate and just a beautiful, beautiful human being. The fluidity of the conversation, I don't know if it is that my moon meets up with Aaron's son, but certainly this conversation moved me to consider Pisces in a whole different light. Um, I think that it's an ever-evolving relationship with Pisces because of its nebulous, Neptunian sort of nature. And Aaron said, I'm not either of those fishes. I'm the water that they swim in. 
So stay tuned, such a great interview with Aaron Diaz. So here we are on the precipice of Aries season, my birth season. If y'all were wondering what my sun sign is, was, I'm trying to evolve. (laughs) I have a lot of contacts in my chart with sun and Neptune, Mercury to Pluto. I, I think I'm kind of a softer version of an Aries. I'm 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 pretty puddly. <laughs> I can also be pretty selfish and brazen, and I'm working always to illuminate my bravery, try to support other people. I, I feel like I'm fairly resilient. Medically so this season, I uh, just have a lot going on. And it, it's funny because uh, with Aries being ruled by Mars, it's it's very much associated with like sharp instruments, surgeries, what have you. Um, so I've been cooking up a storm <laughs> with Mars knives, right? And uh, just, just stuff happening in my medical world. So keep sending the good vibes, people. I can use them. Let's get into this chart, shall we? So the sun is going to enter Aries, bringing in the equinox, bringing in the spring season. So we know the equinox is the halfway point between the solstices, knowing that the solstices are the longest and shortest day of the year. Uh, The December solstice marks the shortest day. It's the, the lengthening of darkness. Um, as we prepare to enter the season of winter. And here we are at the season of spring. The daylight and nightlight is going to be pretty equal, right? Um, That's why they call it the equinox. But these quarter points in the year mark times for celebration, times for reconnection, times for shift. Aries energy is a cardinal fire sign. The word cardinal, so you have three varieties of modes that the zodiac signs or the seasonal signs, another way of putting it, um, are marked by. And cardinal is the initiatory energy. So you have cardinal signs with Capricorn, Aries, Libra, and Cancer. And so Aries is kind of that that initiatory fire element. Cardinal signs tend to be uh, act first, think later, uh, not great at finishing tasks, but certainly very good at uh, getting things started. So the fire element represents so much about uh, perception and intuition, um, sort of a knowing quality when it's perceiving the world around it. Again, it's sort of that like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You don't need to tell me the details. I see the bigger picture. And that's kind of the fire element uh, in, in a nutshell right there is, is uh, seeing the goal at the end and just charging towards it. So we know that Aries, the glyph itself, uh, is representative of Capricorns out there shaking their head. They're like, no, cardinal signs can get things done as well. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. The gonads, um, a fountain, the fountain of energy. It looks a lot like a ram's head or a fire, uh, like a, I don't know, just like a flame itself. So when we look at this, um, often the the, the airy side, my dog is just like, I'm whining, I want attention. <laughs> Thank you, dragon, for keeping me present. So the Aries glyph looks a lot like a nose and the eyebrows. 
So that's some, this is some pretty mundane, basic astrology stuff, but I think that it's worth looking at. I think that it's really uh, worth having, having some uh, contact with because Aries is associated with the head. So a lot of Aries, strong Aries, <laughs> my dog is on my lap right now. Um, he's licking my face. Dragon, go sit down. We're doing a podcast. So Aries being associated with the head, often there's head injuries that are associated with with Aries people. Um, I can tell you I have knocked my noggin more times than I can count. Um, Sometimes people uh, associate this with like headaches and migraines or it can be about hair. Let's talk more about Aries then, this this season of new beginnings. And that is the, the seed pushing up from the soil, right? It's not the germination period. It's the bravery to step out of the comfort zone. It's about being brave enough to step outside. And that's part of the journey for Aries is learning fearlessness. You know, to be brave often takes a lot of audacity and a lot of like just not thinking about it and just going ahead and doing it. So it's not to say that Aries is impulsive. It's just sometimes it has to, you just have to take action. I will relate to clients on a regular basis that I imagine Aries as the, as the Ram sort of having a goal and driving towards that, just rushing into a field. And then when you get out of the other side of the field, right, if you've been rushing too quickly, you're going to be covered in burrs and thorns and mud and all kinds of crud that you have to deal with after the fact. So if you have a lot of Aries energy in your chart, uh, if you have that sort of impulsive tendencies or just Aries qualities, or maybe your sun is connected to Mars somehow or some of your other personal planets are, just remember to slow down. I think that's the bigger lesson here is just knowing to chill out and that you, if you take things with pace and with pause, then you don't have so much emotional flack to deal with after the fact. I think that's a really important lesson is just learning to slow down. You can take strides and steps towards the ultimate goal, but really just relax, take a breath, right? Fire signs have this need to kind of consume their surroundings because fire is an unstable element. It moves, it consumes, it smolders, it needs other energies around it. It needs to be grounded. If, if you pour water on it, it turns into steam, steam being representative of uh, the dissolution, right, of illusions that we might experience. Yeah, so it's a very outgoing energy all around. And I, I, you see it happening already as we move into March and sort of the transition in seasons, which is uh, stabilized in the mutable energy of Pisces, just moving from one mode, fixed Aquarius, mutable Pisces, Cardinal Aries. We already see more people out of their houses. We see people out walking around, people, you know, getting getting re-engaged with nature and sort of this this excitement. And that enthusiasm is very much associated with Aries energy. It's sort of this like leadership quality, the pioneer, the artist, the creative, dare I say the healer. There's a there's a lot of really beautiful things that comes out of this season. So looking at the chart here from Milwaukee at 4.37 a.m., that's central time from the middle of the United States. Uh, this is March 20th, Saturday, that the equinox comes into, into part. The rising energy of that day is Aquarius, 
We have Sun moving into Aries. Um, it's in a wide conjunction from the Chiron wound. This generational energy of recalling who we are, working with the energy of I am, the I am presence. We're going to see this sort of uh, collective reflection point. Chiron is the wounded healer helping us to find the antidote to the, the poison or the illness that is infiltrating our life. So hopefully this energy of bravery and the enthusiasm will help us to look at things in a new light. With the Sun conjunct Venus, um, certainly there is a focal point on all things relational. And we've seen that energy moving back and forth um, with all of the Pisces, Sun, Venus, Neptune energy that's been going on. So Venus will be in the last degree of Pisces. So that's kind of like a final ta-da, that energy at the end of the of the Pisces zodiac before it moves into Aries. I I feel like again focusing on relationships right now when we we feel pretty monogamous in our partnerships. Am I right? I was joking with my partner Timothy that I can't wait to open up our relationship to our friends again after we get vaccinated and and, uh, the weather gets nicer and we can go sit outside again Uh, because monogamous partnership, monogamous friendship, it just feels like I love you so much, but I can't wait to go like meld my energies with other people. And I think that's some of the lessons of Venus and Pisces is like being able to share love openly, radically, loving fiercely and connectively to everything around us because self-worth, a feeling of security, of valuing ourselves, these are all really important. You know, so taking a moment to take it all in, take a deep breath and find some way to channel that to to find some creativity. Other energies that are kind of uh, in contact this week, um, I, I mentioned the Aquarius rising sign. So this is for the you know initiation moment of this springtime. So remembering that we have a lot of humanitarian work to do, and it would um, it wouldn't be of service for me to talk about self love and all the squishy stuff without mentioning all the kind of white terrorism that's been happening in the news. Uh, just this week, there was. Um, mass shootings and murders in Atlanta uh, at um, massage parlors by a 20-year-old white male, violence, death. I mean, this is, this is white terrorism continuing. This is the continuation of the Pluto return of the United States. You know, more so than the Uranus-Saturn squares, which are continuing to tighten and restrict and lengthen and come back together, uh, the Pluto return is illuminating and bringing to surface all of the dark underbelly. And this equinox sequence has Pluto in the 12th house, uh, the energy of the chart this weekend. And, you know, that's... (laughs) That's very revealing to me, you know, this idea that Pluto in the 12th house, where is our power? What do we need to let go of? What are our ideations about power, especially with Capricorn, this uh, structure organization, um, the toxicity of our culture, and that it's roiling in transformation right now. I hope I'm doing enough. That's all I have to say. It's like, I hope that I'm doing enough to help inform my audience, to inform myself, to continue to work with these issues as a white-bodied person, to consider and think about my my part 
uh, how I've experienced privilege, how I've benefited from that, and how I can dismantle uh, what I have power over to help benefit all beings everywhere. So there's your Aquarius rising energy for the week. (laughs) In this chart, Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury, Neptune are all in the first house. The first house being about what we what we uh, are really trying to embody right now. So it's structure, expansion, connections, communication, and universal love. These are all really basic interpretations of what we're working with here. And as much as I would love to focus on only the, the positive energies, we're still dealing with the muck and slime of the dark age. We are still watching it come to surface. We still have to purge to reveal it, to heal it to work with it, to integrate it, power dynamics, authority, where we've been too indulgent. Be peace in our hearts and peace in our homes. You know, if we can work with our emotions and our aggressions within our personal environment, there can be a real return to childlike energy, that return to an an innocence within our own worlds that we can start to see things as they are rather than from the jaded perspective of, <laughs> I know I'm a person who's grown up with war on the news and death and murder on the news my whole life. I don't know a person who has not experienced a sense of exhaustion from the despair of the human experience. I was talking to a dear friend last night who uh, lives on the Hudson River in New Jersey and she took her daughter down to the river and it just stinks of dead fish and she was trying to explain to her four-year-old that the fish had basically committed suicide thrown themselves to the shores because they couldn't stand the water the water was so sick it says a lot to me so I think if we can all turn to sort of a, a childlike perspective if we can work with our emotions and be more communicative and honest about what we're feeling what we're experiencing We can do something about it. We can take initiative, Aries. We can move forward to change things. And as we continue with this energy of the Saturn square Uranus, which is going to keep, again, pulling together and moving apart, uh, it's like a a vice. (laughs) I want to say that it's a teddy bear. You know, you squish it and you release it. But it's more like a sponge getting uh, wrenched out, you know, to, to let go of all the stagnant waters. But Saturn in Aquarius, Uranus in Taurus, you know, we have to find a way to be more humanitarian, thinking of the bigger picture. Spaceship, planet Earth, uh, getting reconnected to our environment, feeling like we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. So that's my soapbox speech for the day. Happy equinox, everyone, moving into Aries season, right, that, that astrology makes sense because it's the seasons of our life, the seasons of nature, the natural rhythms of things. And when we can really reconnect with that energy of rhythms and seasons, that's when we're living our best selves, when we don't ignore all the different parts and sensations. And as a culture growing up thinking that food comes from a grocery store rather than from the earth, that our clothes come from a shopping mall and not from the hands of laborers outdoors or can't grow it you have to mine it right I think we get really disconnected 
because of consumerism, because of capitalism and how it's shaped our ability to connect with nature. I know I spent my childhood watching TV. I don't know about anybody else, but I, I'm so glad that 2020 allowed me to be outside more than I've ever been in my life. I think that it's really, really benefited me in a really beautiful way to feel more connected to the wind and the trees and the mud, all of it. The Kind Oasis brand was created with the belief that premium organic CBD should be affordable and accessible to those who need it most. As someone who has used hemp-derived CBD to support my own wellness, I have to say I really like this product. Their tincture is simple, a full-spectrum CBD and fractionated coconut oil. That's it. They also have potent homemade gummies that are a delight, and the CBD is available in capsules or in a topical balm. Go to kindoasis.com and use offer code Inspired Astrology to get 20% off your order. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Space Cast. Erin <laughs> <laughs> Diaz, where are you calling from? I am calling from Fort Worth, Texas. This is where I was born. Um, I moved away when I was seven years old and continued to visit relatives here and never saw myself moving back. But uh, the adventure of just a big transition in these last few years and then COVID brought, brought me back here. My mom is here and my brothers and their partners and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And it's been uh, surprising and wonderful to rediscover it as a, as a place to live. Has it changed a lot? It has. Uh, it's definitely changed since I was a little kiddo. Uh, and, and I've changed um, and what I, and my kind of identities have changed and my, my, um, my judgments of it have changed, but both the, the outer and the inner changes have, have happened in, in big ways that, that that's all made it possible for me to feel at home here. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. So where did your journey take you as a seven-year-old and how did you get out to Brooklyn, New York where we met? I don't even know that part of your story. Yeah, well, uh, my parents were really young when they had me, and a lot of how I understand my my natal chart, uh, a lot of big realizations that I've had around that actually have to do with with that young parents that um, that were still growing up themselves when I was little. And so part of their growing up journey was to sort of go away from where their families were and kind of do their own thing. And at that time I was seven, my brother Ian was four and my dad had an opportunity in Delaware and we moved from Texas to Delaware uh, along with our dog. And we were supposed to move with our cat, but our cat ran away like jumped out of the car as we were about to leave uh, Texas and never saw my cat Katie again. But um, the rest of us moved 
to Delaware. We were only there for a few months. That didn't really work out for my dad. And then we moved to Maryland. And I lived on the eastern shore of Maryland in this really beautiful rural place on the Chester River. Uh, I lived there in that area for nine years. Um, And in the meanwhile, my parents split up. My dad moved to New York City when I was 13. Started going to New York a lot. Um, And then when it came time for me to go to college, I ended up going to college in the Hudson Valley and sort of claimed my myself as a New Yorker, I think, kind of from then on. And so I went to college in the Hudson Valley and then moved to Brooklyn after that um, and just was there for two decades in, in New York. Uh, the last four years I, of that time, I was I moved upstate, back to the Hudson Valley um, and... And yeah, really, really love the East Coast and really kind of felt like that was home because such formative years were passed there. That's where you grew up, it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, as an into your adult self. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember you telling stories of being in theater in high school and that being sort of a precursor to... I, finding your yoga voice. I know that that's not your you know, main intention now, but it's been part of your path. And I think, you know, being a yogi, uh, it benefits everybody. I think, you know, any, any mm-hmm. chance to pay attention to yourself as part of development. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, theater is a huge part of my life. My, it's actually started way before, uh, high school. I, my parents met here in Fort Worth as part of a theater community called the Hip Pocket Theater. And uh, they're still around. But um, my parents met at that theater and I they put me on stage before I can remember. I was in plays in that theater company. Uh, and I, when my parents moved, that was how they found new community was doing theater. And in, in in Chestertown, Maryland. And theater was, it was so many things for me. Um, I think it was where I felt most belonging. It's where I felt a sense of community and extended family. Uh, it's where I learned how to, how to play my role in the community and participate and feel respected and, and, um, yeah, I learned so much about life uh, from from growing up in the theater. And the times when we weren't doing theater as a family, I think were the time, you know, the times when it was harder for us to be collaborative, I think. And and yeah, I I I do not know who I would be without without theater. I I did pursue it professionally for a little bit in New York City and then really fell in love with these healing traditions and felt really called to pursue that more full on. I also could feel that as I was learning about my own, the own my own healing journey that I was go, that I was on as I came into real awareness and stopped kind of minimizing my own suffering and started to get really honest about the work I had to do. It became clear that my relationship to acting had had lost that spirit of collaboration and in New York city, it had become a very competitive and kind of harsh experience for me. 
And I just realized it wasn't where I had to start to listen, you know, where do I feel safe and healthy and happy? And it was in the yoga studio. It was in my meditation cushion. And when does all my anxiety and all of my sort of shadow self, when does that all kind of rage up in a way that I, I wasn't, didn't have the tools to handle? Lo and behold, in these spaces where I'm trying to get my value from being, being cast, you know, and uh, I could see myself just becoming more miserable in it and losing the love for it. And so I haven't officially acted in over a decade now, but I, it's funny because right now that I'm back in Texas and back in my, my home place, I'm actually planning on doing some work with that theater company this summer and just embracing theater and everything I love about it from a place of kind of child self again and playfulness again and community again, as opposed to where I kind of ended up going with it. You know, I'm hearing so many Piscean themes just oh, in boy. hearing this kind of introduction <laughs> stuff. Like, you know, because because theater is so much about um, often Pisces placements or certain ones that are more uh, indicative of acting and actors, um, because it's that idea of melding and molding and compassion, all of those things that make actors the athletes mm -hmm. of the heart, mm -hmm. so to speak. And then I hear you saying, you know, not minimizing my suffering any longer. And you with your 12th house son in Pisces, you know, that's a very, very strong Pisces placement um, sort of enhances this idea of like working with suffering. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear how you came to recognize that, what brought you to meditation, to yoga, and tell me more about what that that has developed into today with your identity and your philosophy. Great. I love that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I love what you say about, about the Pisces and actor connection. I, I definitely feel, I feel like my whole life I've been really good at, entering into the experience of the other and the experience of the collective. And once I was working in the healing space more and more and, and holding leadership in certain, you know, and, and being the facilitator of healing experiences, I started to really connect the dots between, um, you know, the, the ancient shaman and the modern actor. It's, somebody who is channeling these energies that belong to all of us, you know, that belong to the collective, but for a lot of, for a lot of us aren't so easy to channel. And, and what a gift it is to be able to be a sort of house, a, a medium, you know, like a space, uh, a, a body where these, uh, these, these feelings can be channeled and seen and heard. And we all, and often they're shadowy experiences or they're right. Or they're, or they're very magnificent experiences that the average person wants to other. But I think that a certain kind of person who's able to sort of really let go of the self can, um, can inhabit those. And, and then the other, you know, then the audience gets to, see it and then start to feel safe in embodying that for themselves. I got chills when you said 
the shaman acting connection mm-hmm. because it's there's so much in there's so much about human storytelling and the enrichment that comes with sharing those experiences and I can see where that connection is made I I'm really blown away by that Erin because I I mean I, I again coming back to your chart and you having um you know this this placement with your son I wonder when when you finally could see yourself you know often with that placement with the sun it's like i can't even see myself and maybe other people don't see me and perhaps acting was part of that like stepping into some other role mm. uh to help you start to identify who you were behind that cloak or something something like that yes yes i mean you yeah you said it i mean that's in a nutshell the 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 great challenge of my life <laughs> is is coming back to a sense of self that feels solid and that feels uh, intimate in mine. Um, because I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure as you know, um, I'm sure everyone who's listening ha- has had some experience with our great, our greatest gifts can be our greatest you know, kryptonite or greatest challenges as well. And this is definitely true for me. Um, From a very young age, I was really good at understanding what the audience wanted, what the director wanted, what the playwright wanted, what my other actors wanted, and where was Erin? You know, what did she want besides to do all this for everybody else? And I'm still on that journey. I'm still working on, on... accessing the information that only Aaron has access to. That's uh, my unique experience. And, and learning how to trust what I am when not, when there isn't an audience or a director or a collaborator or a script to follow, right? I know how to do that really well. Um, but that became a kind of safe space and a comfort zone that I would escape to. In, as opposed to doing, you know, being with some of my own pain at times or being really like doing the, the hard work of, of, of le- self-knowledge and learning who I am and being alone was something that was challenging for me for a long time, which make, it makes sense that when I did discover meditation in earnest, I was, I was so head over heels for the practice that I was just it's an immediate zealot for it because I that I realized was what I had to do was learn how to sit still and just go inside. Wow. This, this is all making me think of your Taurus rising. Mm -hmm. If I can just share some of the thoughts that I'm having here is the, you know, the, the rising sign in evolutionary astrology, sort of the, the, the goal, the intention to simplify, to be secure in your body, to feel what you're feeling, uh, to slow down. And it just, it just impacted me that, um, you know, the full moon in Taurus, uh, so we have the festival of Christ coming up, which is the full moon in Aries, uh, often associated with Easter. And then the full moon in Taurus, also known as Wisak, is the festival of the Buddha. And that's in Taurus season, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that idea of like place and time and meditation, like taking your seat, um, that, that feels really 
important to your journey. And now that you stepped into a teaching role this last decade or, or longer, at least for as long as I've known you, and it's developed from the asana practice, which I'm, I'm so grateful that that's where I got to touch ground with you. And I'll never forget meeting you the first time. Cause you, you know, uh, my very good dear friend, Sarah Wilmer said, you know, you have to come in and take this class with Aaron. And I came in and I remember you turning around and I was like, is she 12 years old or is she 112 years old? <laughs> I can't tell because your energy just emitted both qualities of like, you know, this wisdom, this very deep uh, wisdom and then the child energy uh I mean, that's, that's a hard, that's hard to hold that space. And I think for someone who kind of, uh, you know, when you spot it, you got it, you know, it's like, I see it in you and maybe you see it in me type of thing. Um, but it is, it is challenging to hold both of those uh, qualities. Cause it's like, well, where, where do I fit in the now? Hopefully. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for saying all of that. And I've thought a lot about that rising placement myself and my Capricorn moon and have definitely credited both of them at different times in different ways for, for grounding me when I get really lost in that, in that Pisces everythingness. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that, um, that experience, well, first of all, yeah, I mean, I, the, teaching asana as the sort of gateway into all of this stuff uh, has been really important. And oh gosh, I feel like I could also, we could go on a whole avenue about why I, I also ended up sort of shifting away from, from teaching yoga asana exclusively, not just because I think seated meditation is so important, which is a lot of what I ended up going more toward, but also just having to do with a lot of the the yogic traditions started, you know, some things started to come out about some, uh, some not so enlightened or loving or fair uh, power exchanges going on within some of these traditions, you know, and as these more came to light, I, I wanted to embrace more sort of the original instinct to, to, move just to move our bodies really intuitively and I ended up studying more qigong and I ended up studying some other shamanic energy practices and um and getting back into some of my roots with uh with with dance and and theater and just gestural movement and but it's interesting because now in my journey I'm finding myself coming coming back to the embodied practices just more and more and more and not caring so much about the labels around it but knowing that getting into my body is, is, it's the way, it's the route, you know, back to, back to peace and back to wholeness and back to that core sense of self that can be hard for somebody like me to find. I relate with that. Um, you know, yoga was a, was like a detox healing opportunity for me, someone who was never in their body. I felt like floating eyeballs for most <laughs> of my life. And I mean, you, you met me after I had a pretty solid practice that I was very committed to um, because of the healing it offered me, just getting me back into myself. 
And after I had a moving meditation practice with asana, then I was able to finally sit on my Mm -hmm. ass (laughs) and really dedicate to a consistent meditation practice, which and my my listeners hear me talk about meditation a lot because I, I feel like it's the key to unlocking any door that you've been looking mm-hmm. for, essentially, in self and in confidence, in awareness, in intuitive practices, in empathic delineations, all of it. I completely agree with, with that. I totally agree with what you, what you say about that. And, and I... And I've thought a lot about why that is because I'm very, I'm very convinced myself that a lot of my job is to help other people embrace the meditation practice. It's something that most people know that they should do, but everyone has some blockages about it seems. And, and so I've thought about it a lot and tried to explain it lots of different ways. But I think what it comes down to is meditation cultivates awareness of what actually is. And until we have the capacity to meet what is ourselves directly, we get lost in all of the reactions, right? And we can't, it happens so fast that we react to stimulation that we don't even understand that there was something before that. And so that ability to pause and just be with the experience itself. Oh, I'm having these, I'm having these these sensations in my belly. Oh, I have a wave going through my heart. Oh, I ha- you know, to be able to go into the inner world, hang out long enough to meet what's happening there. That's how we start to, to really know ourselves and not just know the reactions, most of which have been sort of conditioned or trained into us. And I think that, that ultimately, once you start to realize that meditation is just awareness, meditation is just the capacity to be in a direct experience with life Um, then meditation becomes everything and you, you you can do it also when you're moving right and you can start to and like you said I think most people actually have a similar experience that first we have to move and then we can be still but what we're really doing the whole time is taking that awareness which is so often scattered elsewhere or kind of trapped in the responses that we have and pull it back into the core, the core self. And for most of us, that core self has been abandoned. We've been so focused on what everyone else needs or thinks or wants of us that this, this direct experience that we're having here and now the universe is talking to you, right? It's talking to every single one of us through our bodies um, that we're, we have to learn once again to listen to that. And there's all the information that we could possibly need right there. But first we have to develop that capacity to just. I, I'm just getting all kinds of insight about Pisces just by mirroring, you know, what you're sharing of your experience, Erin. Cause I think, you know, that duality of the fishes, it's like in this world, but not of Mm. this world. And that our bodies teach us so much about suffering. And I mean, I remember the first time dropping into warrior two, and absolutely hating everything about Mm -hmm. my life at that moment, you know, like the hips, your legs, the tension, the pain, the the muscle muscles, everything that you feel in those moments, and having to just sit with that, 
and to regard that. And I can see why the Pisces um, archetype is often associated with escapism. Because when you're in those moments of pain, it's like, get me the fuck out of here. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to experience this. And that might be some of that, like that slippery energy. And you're sharing with me that like this investigative approach is what has helped you to develop um, a stronger awareness, a stronger self of, uh, or a sense of self-consciousness and um, growth. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and what you describe that experience in warrior too, I, we've all had that and and some version of that and something that feels really important for me, a big, huge lesson, maybe the most important lesson that I've learned in terms of being a teacher or a facilitator or how, if you identify as a healer, but somebody who, you know, like you, Lauren, you know, somebody who's in service and somebody who wants to be a channel for all the good stuff, you know, to come through and people like us really want other people to thrive and heal. And that's part of our purpose something that I learned right away is that experience of just being in suffering and warrior two or whatever the experience is, is a growth experience only if we're in a safe space. We're in a space of trust. If we're, if, so that's the number one job for us as, as facilitators and teachers is to, is to learn how to be a safe space for other people um, to show up and have their experience um, and then to trust them and trust their process and even trust the pain they're experiencing so that they can have like, you know, you did the, the realization that, oh, wow, I'm learning so much about myself and my responses to pain and, and discomfort. And people won't be able to do that self-introspection and that self-inquiry is what I usually call it, which is a huge part of what I offer is just helping people listen for inner information and kind of ask the right questions inside. And um, we can't even do that self-inquiry if we're feeling unsafe and we shouldn't, right? Like if we're feeling unsafe, we should probably get out of that space. I've been in spaces with teachers that really weren't, weren't doing it for the right reasons or like weren't, you know, weren't holding the space in integrity. And now I, I know that it's an act of self-love to, to put up boundaries or walk away when that space isn't safe. I know that I'm not going to be able to do that work. And in fact, I, I might re-traumatize myself, right? I might re-experience a trauma. And then rather than being like, oh, wow, I'm learning about myself. I'm learning about life. I'm, I'm growing, like you said. Rather than that, we end up just with, right, with more fear and more, more trust issues. And, um, and so, you know, whenever you have that experience, like bless that teacher for make, making the space safe enough and taking you into some kind of position next where you could recover and breathe, you know, and that's, that's the main thing, right? It doesn't matter exactly what exercises or poses the teacher gives. If they can be that space of trust, then the student will on their own make their own discoveries. You mentioned the word abandonment, which also makes me mm -hmm. think of Pisces as well. Those feelings of abandonment can be really powerful. And I know that you've gone through a big transformation, you know, exiting your life in Brooklyn. And you moved up to mm -hmm. the Catskills, to Kingston and the Hudson Valley, which is a majestic part of the state. 
And there was, you know, there was some abandonment issues that came up uh, with your relationship and then a marriage and a divorce and sort of a whole new, a whole new entry point in your growth process, Erin. And I, and I know that so much has come out of that space. And I, I'd love to talk to you about, you know, what identity has emerged from that and what you've learned about yourself and your experience. Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Yeah. Um, I've definitely been on a journey, uh, since you and I were, were, were in the same space. I, yeah, I moved onto a, into a very rural part of the Catskill Mountains and lived there for a few years and then got married, got divorced, uh, and then did move in, in, into Kingston, which is a town nearby, and kind of stayed in that area and then ultimately decided to do this journey that brought me back to Texas and kind of visited a bunch of different places on my way. Um, and, you know, I think I think I have always struggled with a sense of home. I think my journey has taken me to all these different spaces and I, I've definitely struggled with a sense of, uh, having a, having a steady safety net that's always there. Uh, I mentioned already having quite young parents and parents that had their own sort of arrested development around some things. And I think that my, you know, I also, my, my birth story involves getting whisked off to the NICU without ever touching my mom or anything like that. I also do birth doula work. And uh, I understand now that a birth trauma like that can actually have ramifications, right? And, and it's, and it's not just that mm -hmm. instance, but it's sort of the, the beginning of, of a lot of instances in early childhood, I think, where I didn't, I didn't have quite, quite the amount of strong strong support that that a little helpless newborn needs uh and and what's interesting is i've come to learn that you know when when someone outside of us abandons us or we have that experience um then something inside has to get abandoned to deal with it to cope with it until we can go back later and heal that and i learned really young how to abandon kind of abandon myself in order to go take care of that parent figure so that maybe they do a better job at taking care of me <laughs> you know and um and found myself in, in this role of sort of being the the peacemaker and the one that um that kept everything together and fast forward you know lo and behold I end up having experiences uh as I started to have, you know, romantic and sexual relationships where I was sort of trying to find that, that strong figure who was going to take care of me and protect me. Um, meanwhile, that was in direct conflict, right? My other fishy is swimming in the other direction, which is like, I've always also really wanted to be autonomous and, and empowered. Um, but that abandonment issue, you know, became a kind of codependency that I really had to look at that ultimately, you know, my divorce was the real, came out of this realization that, that I had been engaging really my whole life in these kinds of intimate relationship dynamics that 
I was never going to get out of. They're cyclical and they weren't ever going to satisfy me. And I was, I was always going to be stuck in the double bind of, you know, as long as I needed somebody outside of me to bring that protection that I was never going to be able to be in a real partnership. That forced a lot of independence on your part and codependency from what you shared about your childhood. And that stuff translates, you know, our stuff works on us until we work on it. Yeah. And in terms of the identity, I I think that that's formed. I mean, identity is hard, is hard for me. Like claiming labels is really hard for me. Um, But I, 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 one thing that really helps me is, is linking it back up to the greater collect, collective narrative and the, the, what we're all going through, um, I, I believe, as a sort of globe and as a kind of a generation on the planet of, of awakening and, um, and learning how to really respect ourselves, how to stop abandoning the self. And to really respect and listen to the self the same way that we're learning how to really respect and listen to the earth again, um, how to, how to really, um, honor the, the great diversity that lives on this earth and how to, how to stop trying to, um, force ourselves into, into labels and force ourselves into dynamics that are unhealthy. And, and so I think that, you know, as I, as I go through my journey, I, I am more and more, uh, I'm more and more firm in my identity as an advocate for every single being to self-determine, to self-label, to decide for themselves what, what their own needs and boundaries are. And, and, you know, some of the work that I do is learning how to talk about it, how to put language to it, how to, how to articulate um, our inner experiences, as opposed to just following along with these scripts. You know, one big script for me was the gendered script, which I thought I was such a great feminist growing up, but I ended up falling into codependent relationships that really looked very gendered. And again, I was sort of looking for like the patriarch. I was like looking for the daddy figure. I was looking for this sort of um, power figure that I could submit myself to. And this showed up when I started getting deep into different uh, spiritual lineages too, because there are plenty of them that want exactly that. You know, you show up and you throw yourself at the feet of the guru. And that was way too convenient for me. I was way too good at that, at abandoning myself and giving the power over to somebody else. Lo and behold, I never, you know, I always ended up getting back into these same kind of dynamics there and feeling disempowered. I never made that connection with the, with the guru practices, only that I reject them. Um, you know, I've, I've never taken a Samaya vow with a teacher, you know, a, a vow of waiting for my own enlightenment to be tied to them. Girl, I was like the first uh, one at the top of the front of the line when they were going to offer something like that. <laughs> I would bow the deepest. I'd bring the biggest flowers. I would figure out what the teacher like. I mean, fa- fawning is my, is my, <laughs> my, my number one trauma response. No, but you know, I've, I've got really, I was good at that. And it felt like spirituality at the time, right? 
and everybody else is doing mm-hmm. it, I can do it. Yeah. Yeah, because devo- devotion looks really good to us Pisces types. You know, we like we we love that idea of of devoting and bonding and unifying and intimacy. So how's that shifted for you? I mean, you, like, I love this idea of advocacy for people self-determining how they identify. And we, we spoke a little bit before about how, you know, with Pisces for you, it's all spaces, all things. And, and this constant um, clarification around labels. And you as a, a wordsmith, as a teacher, as a, like a, a language user in communicating and connecting with people and the more the subtle realms, right? It's really hard to label some of the, the things that we talk about energy being, you know, the primary single term for something that is so vast and so nuanced. Um, and you talked to me a little bit about, you know, non-dualistic philosophy, which is not something I, I, maybe I know about it and I'm not sure of the label, but can you share that with me and how that kind of ties into you know, the gender identification that you've moved through yeah, in the last couple yeah, of years? Um, definitely. So yeah, I've always struggled with, with the labels and, and the words and my, my favorite teachers and, and texts and teachings often seem like little riddles and koans and right. These, these, uh, they're expressions of paradox because once we start to get into the, the vastness and the mystery and the beauty of what really is, it, it is before language, right? The universe is before we came along and gave it, gave it names, gave any of it names. And, you know, there's that famous saying sort of, it's, you know, a finger pointing to the moon. It's like that us as teachers are often just that, you know, trying to use gestures and words to send a student looking in a direction, and then they have to do their own work and they have to move their own eyes and they have to see for themselves. Um, but it is, it's like, <laughs> I love words and I also kind of feel imprisoned by them a lot of the time or, and, and, you know, like wrestle with them all day long. Any writer I'm sure feels that way. Right. Um, and, but especially those of us that are trying to talk about this stuff, it's just like you say, it's, it's tough. Um, we have to be playful with it. This is why there's so much great, you know, mystic poetry. It's like, it has to be sort of poetic in the way that we express about these things, I think. Um, and I think so, so, so non, non-dualism, you know, I've struggled with, what do I teach? Like, what am I even talking? What do I do here? What am I talking about? And especially once I decided that I was going to stop looking for the new lineage and be like, oh, I am a meditation teacher in this lineage, right? Or I am an energy worker in this tradition. Um, I really wanted to be able to just kind of to get back as much as I could. I, I think it's very important to study full lineages. I think it's important to do your homework. I am very, very, uh, yeah, I, I feel very strongly about that. But I I also believe that ultimately that all the information that we're looking for is just it's inside. It's your human information. And that all of these explanations and theories and traditions and techniques are all just trying to point us back to what we already have. Um, and so anyway, as I was sort of struggling to, as I've been struggling to figure out how to label what it is that I teach, I landed on just non-dualist philosophy as 
a way to, to, to name it because um, really in every, mystic could actually also be a way, but in basically in every um, major spiritual tradition uh, that I've been attracted to, there is an aspect of the teaching that is referring to sort of that beyondness, that which is beyond duality. And, you know, some famous examples of this that I turn to a lot, the Tao Te Ching, right? Taoist philosophy is a non-dualist philosophy. And you just open that, open that text up and go to any page, basically, and it'll be talking about going beyond and what it is that is, um, that unites everything uh, is that which can't be named as any one of them. The very first line of that, I think, is that, you know, the Tao that can be named is not the real Tao. And, and so non-dualism, you know, my, my, my heart teacher is Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. I've never met him in person, but he writes so, or speaks so beautifully about it. Um, and, and what all of these teachings have in common, and actually I've also done some work on sort of looking at ancient, uh, other ancient texts and seeing the ways there, there are not, there is non-dualist uh, philosophy underneath. If we look, even though some traditions have taken them and made them dogmatic, made them this or that, right? This, what this part's good. This is bad. This, you know, putting, putting in hierarchy and dogma and power structures and sort of laying those into these ancient teachings. Um, and so a lot of my, my own work and what I share has to do with kind of going back and reclaiming that stuff and seeing that it all comes back to, this great oneness um, and that dualism is a way to keep everyone separate. And that separation is the beginning of, of trauma. Separation is the beginning of fear. Separation is the beginning of war. It's the beginning of attachment and addiction, right? We have to have something out there other than us to either fight or claim. Um, and, and so non-dualism is just describing, you know, in all these different traditions, there's a, obviously a lot of non-dualism in Buddhism um, and in, uh, particularly in Mahayana Buddhism. But any of these can be sort of practiced in a way that ends up being dual or hierarchical or in that way kind of religious, right? Um, but what I'm really interested in is getting us back to the direct experience before we've put on labels, before we've said me versus other um, before we've put on our identities and kind of put up our fists and, you know, counted what's in our bank account, you know, that all of that starts with this, this separate, this feeling of separateness and non dualism is, is for me, the sort of way to come back into seeing the wholeness and bringing things back into harmony. Okay. You know, actually I want to say this. Because I actually had this insight a while back based on something you said. And then our conversation got going in another exciting direction. But I had this image when you said we're talking about the two fishes of the Pisces. And I, the phrase that sort of came to me is, you know, I'm not either of those fishes. I'm the water that they swim in. And that the sense of trying to choose one or the other brings me back into that, that separateness, right? That first separateness when I was separated from my mom, right? The separateness of 
you know, old white dudes deciding that the body and the mind got a divorce. And now, you know, we're all living in the ramifications of that. Like these, these, these terrible acts of separateness, I guess they, I think that for me having to choose, and obviously those two fishes could represent any number of things. Um, and, you know, we were just talking about Taoism. So look at the, the two fishes are like the, the yin and the yang, right? The yin isn't like the good one and the yang is bad or, you know, it's like they, they have to be together, but ultimately there's something bigger that is the Tao, that is neither of them, but both of them, that they both rely on and are a part of, but, and that connects them and that relates them and brings them back into harmony. And I think that for me, when I struggle the most is when I'm trying to be one of those fishes uh, or I'm trying to unite them by in, in, in any way that sort of from kind of inside of the duality, if that makes sense, rather than kind of allowing myself to back up into that more, more cosmic aspect. And for me, I've, I, I've struggled throughout my life in trying to figure out what that means in terms of gender. And I, I have been happy enough, um, you know, assigned female at birth, uh, though I have a male name and I, I was, for lots of reasons, some of them, some of them more profound and deep um, and some of them really kind of petty and selfish, I think, found it just pretty easy just to pass and go along with being a woman. But what I realized is that being a woman is actually a whole set of expectations and um, associations and assumptions that are pretty arbitrary and pretty, um, you know, they don't necessarily totally line up with my worldview as I explore the world for myself. And so for, for, for me, where I am at this point in my exploration is, is playing with identifying as non-binary, but as a way to say, I'm the, I'm the ocean, right? I'm not, I can, I can play as either of these fishes. I can put on the outfits when I, because I feel like it. I can play these roles, right, as the actor, but I don't have to be, I don't have to be fooled into thinking that I'm one or the other. Really just soaking that in. That's really a powerful way of viewing gender and moving beyond, Mm. you know, the paragate, like just moving beyond that understanding. Erin, that's beautiful. I, uh, I will be integrating that into my understanding, I think. So thank you for sharing something so dear and personal uh, to your growth process. I have two main online spaces right now. Forever Marvel is a personal blog. It's where you can go to get information about doing one-on-one coaching with me. And uh, and yeah, it's just a space to kind of find out about more about me and my work and my journey. I also run a, an online space called Nowhere mm-hmm. Village, which is an online spiritual community. And it's a safe space uh, that works like a social media platform, but obviously smaller than most of the ones that people are on. And, uh, and yeah, I, ideally, it's like I was saying before, a space that feels safe enough where people can drop into their practices. And there, there's live guided meditations, and some of the community members hold little events or silent meditations so you can do your own practice. And that's really the platform where I share the most of my actual kind of tools and teachings that you can work with. Um, there's a lot of good free content up there as well. 
And so, yeah, Forever Marvel, that phrase came from a Rilke poem um, from Sonnets to Orpheus. And it comes from a line that says, the trees I forever marvel at, the deep felt distances. Uh, it, it goes on, but it's, it's sort of, you know, he's describing the experience of being in relationship with, in a relationship of wonder with the world. And I believe that that happens anytime that we really are able to drop into the now, that we're able to drop our defenses and drop out of our stories and our fear, which feeds our stories and just be with what is, we're going to have an experience that makes us marvel. And that the practices, you know, I, I've had a huge lots of reframings around what my practice is about. But honestly, when I started, I just, I couldn't articulate it this way, but I had a lot of suffering. I just wanted to get the heck out of it, right? Use the word escape earlier. I wanted to just get out of here, kind of, right? Like, let's, let's get out of here and go to heaven, kind of, you know, let's go to another place. And, you know, the, the darndest thing <laughs> is that it turns out that the way to that, that experience of freedom is actually right here through through the now and the here, through what I'm experiencing. The question is, can I, you know, how am I, how am I trapped in a relationship with the here and now that makes me think that the here and now is boring or ordinary or scary or not right, you know? Um, and we've all, I think, had this experience of just looking at a tree or a sunset or into the eyes of a child or, you know, just an experience where you're just, this is it. This is it. It's not something special that only, you know, you have to put in this many hours or climb the mountain or it's not something that we cross a finish line and we're finally good enough to experience the wonder of life. It's, it's just, it's right here. And so that's, that was the inspiration for that, for that name that also has been really helpful for me to remember is we can also be in wonder and sort of curiosity even when things are are painful you know that there's that and I think that's that's that can be hard it's to realize that that too is like oh whoa you know look at whoa that suffering that that's amazing <laughs> or whatever it is and to, to be able to bring that that energy um can often help us yeah help us meet the things that are hard in, in new ways, as well as the things that seem ordinary. I've been contemplating a lot about this specific topic. Um, and it came up with some of my Neptune musings that came about last week, because we had a very Neptunian Piscean sort of energy this last two weeks. And I think there's something to be said about those moments of crisis yeah. that really pull us into presence and that our physical bodies honestly react with chemical responses to draw us into full attention. And when you were just describing, you know, the curiosity and wonder that can come out of um, those hard moments, the moment that that's really sticking out to me, I, I do want to share it because I just, I feel like I, that it deserves that space. But the day um, that I found my friend uh, had multiple strokes, 
had put a hole in his heart valves, lots of problems. And, and we arrived at his place with paramedics and doctors and fire department and everything. And I'm, I'm following my friend who's on his deathbed at 25 years old and, and following the ambulance uh, with him in it. Um, I was sitting in the front seat and my dress was covered in mm-hmm. um, humans, human fluids. I won't get into it. Um, I, but I was like soaking wet with fluids and the sky was the most beautiful sky I think I'd ever seen off of Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. The ambulance driver said, are you doing okay? And I just said, (laughs) I think there's pee on me. This radiant sky, it was the most beautiful day. And the worst thing that could ever happen, you know, happened that day, uh, at least in this like micro environment. And that was such a, that was like a huge turning point for me. I mean, I I honestly think of July 13th, 2009 as like a birthday. I think of it often as this, this point of entry into a new version of myself so I, I think that there's something uh, so special what you shared that when we are going through through grief, the way that we're experiencing grief right now, a year into a pandemic, I find my heart so tender in these moments of realization, like what we've been through and that every face I see is masked except my partner and my puppy. And it, it, it's... Um, it's really, it's tender. And I think that we can be present with ourselves, even when yes. it's this uncomfortable. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, that is a really, it's really beautiful what you shared. And I, I have, I've definitely found that to be true, that the, the capacity for, I mean, this is how duality really works, right? If we can get beyond it and look at it, it's like, dualities are really like mm, two aspects of the same thing. I think that, you know, grief, grief, trauma, you know, physical pain can also bring us to that place that you're talking about, right? You're just like, whoa, whoa, I get it. Wow. Everything's amazing kind of, right? It's like it's experiences of dukkha, you know, or pain uh, open our eyes in ways that we just can't be woken up in a, I don't know, it's, it can't be woken up in other ways. And so that, that when we can experience that end of it, of the polarity, we can also accept, experience the other end of the polarity fully. And, and the way that it opens our awareness and our hearts to be in that kind of experience and to really, you know, when somebody else is really suffering, what, what happens? This, the self sort of steps aside and you're in the shared and again, you know, and out of your own little problems in mind, it reminds me of um, going to. I had a, a beloved dog, Maud. You maybe met at some point, but yeah, be- beauty. Well, she lived upstate oh, with us for Maud. a couple years, and then just out of nowhere, got sick. Took her to the vet. It was much, it was much, a much bigger issue than we had realized. Then I had to rush her to the animal hospital in Albany, which is about an hour away and ended up having to put her down there. And I remember driving back with her, uh, her body in the back. We were going to bury her on the farm and was just, yeah, in, in very deep grief. And my partner couldn't go with me. Uh, I had, I was alone and was nervous about the drive. I was like, am I going to be able to keep it together? But I remember driving and just feeling so much, yeah, tenderness is the perfect word and love 
And I remember feeling so much love for the other drivers. Like I wanted to drive, I can sometimes be a little bit of a speeder, you know, and a little and like having kind of being a little athletic with my driving. And like, and I just wanted to be really gentle with my driving. Cause it's just like anyone in any of these cars could have gone through a loss today. Anybody could have someone they love hurting in the back seat or, you know, their remains like, and, and all of us have to go through this. And so I just want to be so tender with everyone. And I had the same experience of just seeing the most beautiful sky. I had to pull over and just look and the leaves were changing. It was October in the Hudson Valley. And I had to pull over at some point and just sat by the side of the car and kind of talked to my dead dog about how beautiful it was and how much I loved her. I'm now I'm crying. <laughs> That's really precious, Aaron. Thank you for for sharing that. That's um mm-hmm. I, my my hound dragon is always nearby, so he's like two feet away from me right now. And uh, I mean, I know that that love for our animals is so profound. Mm-hmm. It's it's unlike anything else. And human relationships are also really important. But um, it's so they're so they're so important. Treasure, and they right? and those of us who want to learn about okay. in, our intuition, all right, inhabiting the self, like they teach us. How we want to learn about authenticity, right? They teach us. We want to learn about playfulness. They want we want to learn about being. Uh, about loving without abandoning the self, but like loving completely, they they teach us. And for anybody who's listening who, who has had the kind of abandonment or abuse or neglect that makes it very hard to trust people, um, having a relationship with a pet can be that very thing that starts to build that sense of of trust and belonging, and and the sense that I I'm valuable. Right, the dog doesn't care. What you know, if you pulled in a bunch of money on your last retreat, you sold like that doesn't give a fuck, right? Like they, they just uh, they love you because you're you, and to have the, a relationship like that. I mean, most of us, most of us are broken humans who have relationship with other broken humans, and so community to feel that. But but a but a, a dog or a cat, you know, some kind of pet, um, they can bring that in in a way that's just extraordinarily healing. So I know, um, I, I know to, it's so good. I wouldn't talk to you for another <laughs> hour, but I, I do want to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> um, cause I know that you're teaching a course on right relationship this month at nowhere village, the online space that you shared about, um, what other, how other ways do you identify as a professional, um, healer? I mean, to, to use that word in a very, uh, broad sense. Uh, you do energy work that's based on uh, shamanistic practices that you've worked with, um, you know, real great teachers, inner wisdom, helping to awaken, empower people to facilitate growth. Uh, you mentioned birth doula, you teach oh meditation, you coach. Um, am I missing anything? Like, what what would you like to share? You well, I, you're also touching me at an interesting wonder. point, I, I think, it. where I, I'm trying to simplify and clarify what I'm doing. And part of this has been brought about because of, of the pandemic. Um, so a lot of what I used to, used to do was a lot of um, retreats and workshops. I taught a lot of, uh, for a lot of different yoga teacher trainings and that kind of, I would go into different schools and teach all the kids and teachers yoga, uh, you know, and meditation practices. 
So I was sort of pretty actively kind of just filling my year. And then when I couldn't teach in person anymore and I really moved toward more online offerings, it's actually been really, it's been hard in a lot of ways, but it, it has helped me try to actually really get clear, A, in my online presence and sort of what am I, what am I doing? And, um, and yeah, it's, it's really driven me to want to, to simplify and clarify. Look, my, my ideal reality, one that I really hope to actually manifest or inhabit at some point is to live in a little intentional community that's like a little village and I'd just be the, you know, the local, the local shaman lady who <laughs> would be the one who could assist your birth to attend your death to, to be there for counsel, um, to help you, you know, do your practices and, and facilitate ceremonies. Um, as it is in our, you know, modern capitalist society, I still struggle to figure out how to be that sort of fluid in what I offer um, and at the same time sort of make sense and appeal to people. Um, right now, the main ways to work with me are uh, doing online courses with me. I'm doing one in April and May uh, about the chakras where we're going to be doing different uh, seated meditation and also movement practices to uh, to learn how to really fully inhabit these different energy centers and and build a deep relationship with them to learn how to really listen to them as seats of inner knowing as sort of channels uh, for the universe to speak directly to each and every one of us and we'll uh, I'll of course also just give talks about um, about about how all that works. But the main thing is, you know, facilitating a space for people can show up and do practices together because it's pretty hard to just read about something and then be self-motivated. And so that sense of having a teacher and having a community has been really helpful for a lot of people, especially those really struggling with not being able to get to the yoga studio or wherever they normally do their practices. Um, and then the other thing that I do is coaching. And people come to me for various, various things. The main reason people come to me is when they're trying to start a meditation practice or restart a meditation practice to just have somebody to sit there and kind of talk through it with to give different tools um, and to give a little bit of feedback and encouragement and to organize um, people's thoughts about about and their priorities around how they approach their practice. The other thing that people tend to come to me for a lot is when they're struggling through a transition of some kind of any kind and you know doing birth doula and and I'm, I'm working uh, toward becoming a death doula now as well, is really just, a, it's about these huge transitions that we go through. And even if you're not actually um, going to give birth to a child, right? Every time that we, every time that we are, we transform ourselves, it's like a rebirth process and there's a death process. And so those aren't easy. And, and it comes with, you know, we have to get back to these really basic skills of learning how to how to be with our feelings, you know, and how to, how to let grief work through us or anger sometimes has to work through us, um, how to, and how to really embrace and step into whatever new skills or resources or perspectives, right, that come with the rebirth. Um, it's disorienting and it's very helpful to have somebody who uh, has a sense of what that process looks like and a deep trust in the process, right? If you're in the birth room and you've never given birth, somebody who's there is like, look, this is normal. This is okay. You know what? This is maybe we're going to call the doctor on this one, right? But like somebody who can say, 
okay, I'm with you and it's your journey and it's your process, but I'm going to, I'm going to help you when you need a little, a little safety net, when you need a little trust boost, you know, when you need a little truth infusion. Um, And, and then the other, another big piece that's related to all of the rest of this is uh, I often help people facilitate people integrating psychedelic experiences and or and or prepare for psychedelic experiences. Um, yeah. So those are kind of the main reasons that people end up booking me for work. But there's all sorts of wonderful things that we can do. Some people come to me just because they want to study a text that they know that I know well. And we get to hang out with one of my favorite ancient authors for a while and, and, and nerd out that way. You are uh, dynamic, my dear. And I, I'm your curiosity and your voracious hunger for just the human experience is really inspiring. So thank you for sharing all, all of those different gifts and blessings that you have to offer people. And um, you can find Aaron at forevermarvel.com and Nowhere Village online. And I'll get those posted in the, the notes for the episode. Uh, it's been such a gift, such a gift having you, Erin. Um, thank you for joining me today. And I can't wait to interview you again. It has been such <laughs> a like delight so to, to reconnect with you after all these years and to to see you thriving in your work and uh, and just a total blast. I learned a lot through this conversation. And I also will be kind of processing and digesting some of the things that came up as we brought our minds and hearts together here today. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. And thank you for the work that you do. Kin is a modern mystical shop located in the heart of Des Moines, Iowa's East Village. Femcentric at its core, Kin is a woman-owned and operated business. The shop is filled with specialty products from women-owned businesses across the country. Candles, body care, The shop's Venusian energy comes in as soon as you step into the door, whether it's online or in person. Ethically sourced crystals, Palo Santo and Sage are just some of the highlights, along with an exquisite collection of vintage jewelry. Shop online at kindsm.com and let them know that Lauren sent you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us for Inspired Astrology with Lauren K. Hickman. My guest today was Aaron Diaz. You can find them at Nowhere Village, a spiritual online community. Uh, They have some class offerings coming up in May and June covering the chakras, uh, including body movement and meditations. You can find their blog at forevermarvel.com. Thank you for joining me this week. I know there's a lot of information out there bouncing around in space. So you joining me means so much. Feel free to find me on Instagram at Lauren K. Hickman. You can drop me a line, suggest guest. Uh, You can even find out how to send me a voicemail that I can record on here. And I love questions. If I can answer questions for you, or if there's things that you'd like to hear on the show, your feedback means a lot to me because I'm producing this content for you. 
Dragon sends his regards. <laughs> you can send me uh, Venmo tips for dog food for him <laughs> at uh, Venmo at Lauren K. Hickman. And of course, I'm so grateful to share this space with you. And until next week, stay inspired. <laughs>